Well, you can take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. It is uh, sobering to take the Lord's Supper and to be reminded of the cost of our forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for us, but hopefully also a joyful thing, something that brings peace and satisfaction with where we are now in our relationship with the Lord, if in fact we know Jesus is Lord. This morning uh, in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 44 through 46, just three short verses, and believe it or not, there are actually two parables contained in just these three verses. And if you will, we'll read them together now. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. Jesus speaking, and we read this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, those are two short parables. Some of you may be thinking that's the kind of sermon I wish we would preach more of around here. Just a few verses, back to back, but emphasizing the simplicity of a single point. And I think this is how I would summarize what Jesus is teaching here. The kingdom of heaven represents unparalleled value. Unparalleled value, but not everyone in this world realizes it. Not everyone realizes it. Notice in these two parables the idea of the kingdom of heaven being found, being found. In the first parable, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. It's unlikely today, if you go around all the various fields around Preble County, that you will find someone who has hidden a great treasure in a field. It's unlikely. Some of you may have things that you treasure Uh, special coins you've collected or family things of value, pieces of jewelry that are worth more than the size of them would seem to suggest. When I was growing up, I collected baseball cards. I didn't just collect my baseball cards. I did my very best to collect all of my brother's valuable baseball cards too. We traded back and forth. I was a merchant myself. We traded for the ones that we thought were most valuable, and he was a sucker, so I got a lot of good baseball cards growing up, but I remember going over to a friend's house, and his father had also collected baseball cards, and he had cards that, according to the magazines that we looked up the value in, were very, very valuable. I could not believe what I was looking at on this man's kitchen table. He had a treasure of baseball cards. Now, in ancient times, it was not uncommon to take valuable possessions and to put them in a box or a piece of pottery and bury it in a field for safekeeping. They did not have banks and safety deposit boxes and homes under lock and key and alarm system and things like that. And so burying it in the ground in a place where only you knew it was, was a fairly common practice. Now, this practice meant that from time to time, you might just be fortunate enough to stumble upon something that someone had buried in a field. Was it likely? No. But was it unheard of? No, it wasn't unheard of either. This was something that actually happened. Perhaps an owner died and he had never recovered it. Perhaps someone generationally had buried it there and the family had moved on. Here in verse 44, this is the picture that Jesus is painting. 
The kingdom of heaven is like stumbling upon a treasure in a field. A treasure you did not bury. A treasure you did not plan on finding. What a wonderful day it would be to just stumble upon a treasure that you did not know was there and you had no intention of finding. And so it says that for joy, the man takes action. That's the first parable. In the second parable, beginning in verse 45, we are told that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, someone who trades invaluable items. And the merchant is in the business of buying pearls. And while he is searching for the very best pearls to purchase, he finds a pearl, unbeknownst to the owner, that represents tremendous value. In fact, more value than any pearl he has ever found. Have you ever seen the show, The Antique Roadshow? Anyone? A few head nods. I expect you have. You should be experts on this matter back there in the back. Yes, I do not know anything that I am watching on the Antique Roadshow. I have no idea. As, fa- as a matter of fact, that's part of the fun of me watching a clip from the Antique Roadshow because the expert could say, this is worth $50 and I would not be surprised. And he could say it's worth $5 million and I would not be surprised. I know nothing about it. It's like a opening tr- presents in a box as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I would believe him either way. That's the whole interesting part about it, is for me, someone has this treasure that they have found and discovering how much exactly is this thing worth. In this parable, the man who trades in pearls is the expert. He is the one who understands truly the value of what he is uh, trading back and forth in, and he has found a pearl of incredible value. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is also like that. Now think about what we have read then. Some people are like the first guy. They aren't searching for anything. They are simply going about their day out in the field, sticking a shovel in the ground to dig or to sow or to plant or to harvest where they have uh, hundreds of times before. And suddenly, without any expectation, they find something amazing in this world. And the amazing thing that they find is that God loves them. Is that God loves them that God has already, unbeknownst to them, gone to great lengths to secure their salvation, to deal eternally with their sin, that they do not have to live with fear of death or fear of want or fear of suffering or fear of any of these things anymore, that God has, in fact, secured their peace on their behalf and he has invited them into their into his kingdom with him. They weren't expecting to find that. They didn't anticipate finding that. It just happens that they stumble upon it. At least that's their perspective. And other people, they are like the guy who has traded in this stuff for years. They've tried all sorts of spiritual things. Perhaps they've been to many different churches, tried many different religious ideas before. They have dabbled deeply in philosophy and they could go on about the ramblings of Immanuel Kant or Nietzsche or so on and so forth. And they have searched and searched for the greatest truths in all the world. And then they see Jesus Christ suddenly and unexpectedly for who he is. And they recognize the value of the gospel. That the only Son of God has come into the world to save sinners such as me. And they realize the value of what they have found. And thinking nothing about mortgaging everything else, they latch on to something of incomparable beauty, which we have celebrated here this morning in our own quaint way. Now this is why we as Christian people have been told to speak about 
Jesus, to speak about Jesus. We have been given a treasure in God's Word, and we have, as it were, the responsibility to share it. It's why we are having things like invite a friend to church Sunday in two weeks. By the way, we're not only inviting a friend, we are also bringing food. I just want to clarify that point. Some of you, like me, are sitting there thinking, what will happen if no one brings any food? And I can answer that question for you. The church will provide beverages. That's what will happen. So uh, don't just invite a friend, but bring something for the friend to eat as well. That would be a good thing to do. Maybe invite a friend who's going to bring more food than you. That might not be a But we have things like this because we recognize that the kingdom of God is not like the lost city Atlantis. And it's a kingdom, but it's not some mythical kingdom. And it's not some undiscoverable mystery. It's not something that we could talk about and discuss as if it were fables. But instead, God has sent his son into the world that his kingdom may be known, that his kingdom may be discovered, that his kingdom may be entered. Now, this is why the Apostle Paul writes these words to us in Romans 10. I want you to think about just these two verses in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You can't call on Jesus if you haven't believed him. How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How are people going to believe in Jesus if they've never heard of him? How are they going to hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How will people find the gospel of the kingdom if the gospel of the kingdom is just a flat-out mystery to them? Someone is going to have to tell them. Now, in Acts chapter 8, one of Jesus' disciples, a man by the name of Philip, finds himself walking along a road, And lo and behold, there is an Ethiopian man reading his Bible. And Philip asks him very plainly, Do you understand what you're reading? And you have to admire the man's honesty, because he says, How can I unless someone guides me? That's Acts 8.31. How in the world am I supposed to understand this unless someone guides me? Well, I think that is pretty clear for us this morning. What is our job when we use big words like evangelism? We have to help people to understand what the Bible is saying about Jesus. That's our job. It's not a complicated job. It's, it's not even, frankly, a difficult job. We all, as Christians, have a basic understanding of what the Bible says about Jesus. We have to help people understand, like Philip did with the Ethiopian man, What in the world this is saying? We are to be speaking plainly. We are to be speaking regularly. And we are to be speaking sincerely about Jesus Christ. Plainly, regularly, and sincerely. Because throughout the course of daily living, people will find the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 13. People will find it. Many will not. Many will not be interested, but many will find the gospel And they will receive it as a message of great joy. They will see in it something of great value. Now, back to these verses for a second. The second thing that we see in these two parables, having found this treasure, having found the pearl, the finder does not hesitate to purchase it. And the shocking part of it is, at all costs, at all costs. Our first man, 
The lucky guy who stumbles upon a treasure buried in the field, he doesn't simply steal what he's found. He doesn't simply haul it off. He wants to own it outright. He doesn't want there to be any question of ownership. And it says he is happy to pay for the field at the outright price of all his possessions. In fact, for joy, it says, he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy it. An important detail, all that he has, not some of what he has. He liquidates everything. I don't know about your own experience. I have never found anything in my life in a practical worldly sense that I was so intent to own that I was willing to sell all of my stuff, empty all of my accounts, and gather all of my resources in order to buy. But such is the case with this man. Now I can tell you this. In hindsight, there are definitely things in this world that I would have been better off doing that with. In hindsight. I would be a very wealthy man had I sold all that I had and bought stock in Apple computers in 2001. I'd be a very wealthy guy. I would be very wealthy if I sold all that I had and bought stock in Amazon in 2002. So it's not as if this parable about a man selling all of his assets to buy something of extreme value, it's not as if this is unrealistic, but as much as treasures like this may be out there, few people realize the value of what they're looking at when they're looking at it and seeing it buried in a field or on a merchant's table. I knew what Apple Computers was, I knew what Amazon was, but I didn't understand the value of the thing that I was looking at. Of course, the only way that it makes sense to sell all that you have in order to buy something is if you are buying something that is worth far more than the sum of all that you have. If you are not doing that, then you're being simply foolish here. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like that. That's what it's like. It's like realizing that this thing is far more valuable than everything that I have. It's worth more than the sum of all of my possessions. In the second parable, the scenario is repeated with the whole pearl. The merchant is entirely convinced that this pearl he is acquiring surpasses the value of all of the stuff that he already owns. So, it is not enough that the gospel of the kingdom be discovered. That's our part of it. The discovery. We're supposed to be sharing the gospel. But, in order for someone to possess God's kingdom... In order for someone to enter into heaven, they must come to an understanding of the cost involved and joyfully see it as good value. We are on the discovery side of it. We are supposed to be sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, helping people find the kingdom, but we cannot convince someone of the value. We can testify about the value. We can try to live our lives in a way that demonstrates the value. But God has to do that. That thing has to happen apart from us. Every person has to come to their own decision about how much this is worth to them. To put it bluntly, how much is Jesus worth? That is a fair question. You cannot buy your salvation. The blood of Jesus, which we've remembered again here this morning, is not for sale. But the person who places their life in the service of Jesus Christ... That person is not permitted to hold anything back from him. The pledge to follow Jesus includes everything in life that we hold dear. And we know this, we sing of this, the, the old hymn, I surrender all, you know what the hymn says, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. 
I will ever, no matter what, I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. And then it refrains, I surrender all, I surrender all. We dare not say, Jesus is my Lord and King, and then cling to our possessions or our wallets or our relationships or our personal goals. If this is uncomfortable, I think that's okay. But I would ask you to consider another passage. Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. Um, You could turn there if you'd like. I'll try to put it up on the screen so that you can follow. Beginning in verse 25, Jesus is speaking to this exact thing. It's okay, I think, to be uncomfortable with this. I think the Lord Jesus is leaning into the uncomfortability of this. In fact, he is challenging us to consider how uncomfortable this might be. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, we read this. Now great multitudes went with him. That's Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For, here's his explanation, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees it begins to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going to war against another king doesn't sit down first and consider? Whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes to him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, that's the cost of discipleship. Not according to Reggie, according to Jesus. The cost is everything. Whoever does not forsake all that he has. When Jesus speaks of hating family members, he's not speaking of some kind of outward animosity towards them. He's talking about forsaking is the idea. He's talking about being willing to part with family, being willing to part with those who will not follow Jesus. That's the word in verse 33, forsaking. Following Jesus means leaving things behind. Does that mean that I stop being a father? No. It means that I am a disciple of Jesus first and foremost. And all of my relationships, let me say that again, all of my relationships, whether with my wife or with my children or with my parents, all of my relationships are surrendered fully to Jesus Christ. I am first and last a disciple of Jesus. I'm not first a disciple of Jesus and second a dad, and third a husband, and fourth and fifth, and so on and so on. No, no, no. I am first and last, fully and completely, a disciple of Jesus. And every part of my life is surrendered to obeying His commands and instructions, whatever they are. There's no part of my life, be it as a father, be it as a husband, where I can withhold from the Lord and say, this section is my own. Every part is surrendered to Jesus. That would be a terrifying thing if Jesus were a bad Lord, if he were a bad king, but it's not a terrifying thing to me. In fact, I see it as a very reasonable thing 
because Jesus is good, because his word is good. What he says is good for life and godliness. What he says is of value. What if I want to be the kind of dad who takes his family camping every weekend? Well, I'm going to have to surrender that to what the Lord says I'm supposed to be doing. What if I want to be the kind of husband that gives his wife all of the best things in the world? Well, I'm going to have to surrender that to the instructions and the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on and so forth. In every faucet of my life, in every single area, in every relationship, in everything, I am first and last a disciple of Jesus. My marriage is surrendered to Jesus Christ. My relationship with my children is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Everything is surrendered to Him, lest I look like the fool who plans to build a building and runs out of money before he starts to put any boards together at all. See, that's a danger for us in the Christian faith. In my zeal, and my excitement, I want to follow Jesus. I want to do the right thing. And then the moment that the cost gets too high, we look like the fool with unfinished business. The person who didn't consider what it was they were pledging when they said, all to Jesus I surrender. No matter the cost, physical, financial, relational, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage in Luke, we're told the person who doesn't understand this is like the guy who goes to fight a battle and doesn't even bother to consider the cost involved in this conflict. There is a cost, like in the parables. The field must be purchased, the pearl must be bought. Now, this is the part of the sermon where we wrap things up. How am I supposed to do that? Because we have focused on the cost How can we stop short of the joy of heaven in this? And time is going to flee away from me before we get deeply into that. But a little bit for consideration today anyway. Peter actually asks a very interesting question of Jesus about this in Matthew 19. Um, He says in Matthew 19, it says, you know, then Peter answered Jesus and he said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, What shall we have? It's almost the kind of question that you would expect Jesus to look at Peter and say, what are you talking about, man? You ought to be happy that I am just, you know, interested in you at all. What do you mean, what shall you? I'll tell you, know, (laughs) I don't know what, you know, your experiences with your kids are like, but sometimes as a parent, I can get a little um, indignant when my kids act like they don't already have enough in life, you know? Uh, okay, Nicole understands. That's good. The rest of you, your children never get like that. But, you know, for, for me and Nicole, um, we understand what it's like when it feels like you're providing a decent livelihood for your kids and they're frustrated because they, when do I get this and when do we get that and what about this? And it's like, are you kidding me? Sit down and shut up and be thankful for what you... And you almost expect some sort of rebuke from Jesus as Peter asks... This dumb question, I mean, he think about all that Peter had got to experience and see it. He'd seen Jesus walk on water and feed the 5,000 and been promised eternal life and on and on. And he has the audacity to look at Jesus and say, question, what do we get for leaving everything and following you? But he is not rebuked. 
In fact, Jesus treats this as if it is a perfectly reasonable and fair question to ask. And I'm happy for that because I have to be honest with you. Sometimes, in the midst of trial, in the midst of paying the cost that I still struggle to pay, in the midst of the difficulty of it, I am prone to wonder, what is the point of all of this? And Jesus speaks to Peter plainly. This is what he says. Assuredly, I say to you, when the Lord offers me an assurance, I am willing to accept it. Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I take that to be a promise specifically to Peter and the apostles, but we come in in the next part. And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, and I think in that we are meant to encompass all the possessions of those houses and lands and things too. Everyone who has left these things for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, there are two promises then for us in verse 29. Promises that we don't have much time to dwell on, but promises that you can think on on your own. The first promise. Whatever earthly possessions or relationships that following Jesus has required of you, it will be repaid a hundred times. Only God can make a promise like that. I wouldn't dare make a promise like that. Only God can. And only those who believe God will accept it. But there is a promise of a significant return on whatever we've invested, on whatever we've forsaken. And the second promise, whoever has paid the cost of following Jesus will inherit eternal life. It's a sunny 50 degree day today if the weatherman is to be believed. I challenge you after the service to take a walk through the cemetery across the way over there. And look at the headstones and do the math and find the child who died at five and a man who died at 50. And look at the headstones with only one set of dates by one name and the other name blank because the person is waiting. And consider for yourself when the last time you went to a funeral was. And ask yourself to stir up the feelings that were once so poignant when you said goodbye to someone whom you loved. And remember what death is like because that is why Jesus went to the cross. That is why Jesus went to the cross. That is why he gave his body and his blood to pay the cost of this, to free you from death, to free you from the grave, to free you from the torment and the suffering involved with eternal death. There's a song that we'll sing in a moment, and lest we just mumble our way through the lyrics as we close with the song, I'll remind you of them at the end of this sermon here. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, that's me. I understand what that feels like. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. He did. He did. Can you imagine... 
Can you imagine the freedom of being able to say, I owe God nothing for all of my wrongdoing? I owe God nothing for anything that I've done against Him? Jesus paid it all. So, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus has completely washed it so that it no longer remains in any way, shape, or form on my life. I am to God a child, not a criminal. And that's the work of Christ. So it's a small cost to me in the sum of the matter to give everything for Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that one day when my children bury me, Lord willing, that it will not be goodbye forever, but they can rest assured in the peace that you've promised us, that we are not of all people most to be pitied, but that there is in fact a resurrection from the grave, that there will be a great reunion, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as David meditated on and found peace in as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. That as we face enemies as he did, we will know that there's coming a day when you will anoint our heads with oil in such a way that our cup runs over, spills over, overflows with the goodness and the gladness of the kingdom that you're bringing us into. Help us not to fear the shadow of death, but help us not to ignore it either. Help us to understand, to get a glimpse of the tremendous amount of eternal suffering that your only son has given his life to spare us from. So help us to speak of him clearly and plainly and regularly, with sincerity in our hearts, hoping that others will discover this great pearl, this great treasure of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.